Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. We're soon approaching the 100th anniversary of a remarkable event in Canadian and British history, the entry of Max Aitken in the British government. On February 10, 1918, Prime Minister David Lloyd George named Max Aitken, a Canadian businessman, to the portfolio of Minister of Information. Max Aitken, the kid from New Brunswick, is of course best known to history as Lord Beaverbrook. With me in the studio is Greg Marshaldon, one of the co-hosts of the Champlain Society podcasts. He's also the author of Profits and Politics, Beaverbrook and the Gilded Age of Canadian Finance, which was published by the University of Toronto Press. Greg Marshaldon is Professor of Public Policy and Health Systems at the University of Toronto. Greg, you're in the seat of the Witness to History being interviewed this time. It's always fun to talk to you about political history, so I've been looking forward to dive into this event and draw out some of its significance. So let's uh, let's dive into it. Uh, tell me, why did Max Aitken gain entry into the coalition government of David Lloyd George? Well, there are at least two really good reasons why. First is when Max Aiken arrived in London in 1910, he was already a very wealthy man. He was a millionaire, uh, by today's standards, a billionaire. And he began to invest in a number of businesses, some of which were having some difficulty at the time, uh, led by very influential figures in the business and political world of the time. And as a consequence, it became very close to uh, the elite uh, in London. And as a consequence of that, he, uh, he was able to, uh, to get involved in politics. At first, it was just talking about politics. He was a conservative. Uh, he had participated directly in the 1910 election by providing money to certain candidates in Canada. Uh, he was heavily involved in the anti-reciprocity coalition. Uh, he believed in the idea of a, a common customs union in the British Empire. Uh, and so uh, he was drawn to some very prominent conservatives. And one of these was Bonner Law. Andrew Bonner Law. That's right. And uh, in that case, uh, he very quickly insinuated himself into uh, Bonner Law's entourage and had numerous meetings and dinners and discussions with Bonner Law. Now, Andrew Bonner Law was also from New Brunswick. That's right, and that's one of the reasons they had this connection. Now, as you know, Law left New Brunswick at a very early age, but he, uh, he clearly had some affection for Max Aiken in part because of where he came from. They could relate to each other very well. Although they were separated by a good 20 years. <clears throat> that's right. Max Aiken was born... Uh, actually, just north of here, uh, in Maple, Ontario, in 1879, um, Bonner Law was a good 20 years older than he was. That's right. Now, he moved as a baby to uh, to New Brunswick and uh, lived and grew up in Newcastle, New Brunswick. But the the real point here is is that Max Aiken had this ability to. Uh, become friends with people that were older than him. His first mentor was a guy by the name of John F. Stairs in Halifax, who was also much older than he was. And they became very close. 
And in fact, John F. Stairs really gave Aiken his first, first, real first class introduction to Canadian business in Halifax. So take us to where we are now, 100 years ago. Um, it's late 1917. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in Britain right now, isn't there? Well, that's right. And, you know, Aiken also had been working for the Canadian government before that. He was effectively uh, Canada's representative uh, in Europe in terms of the war effort, and he was involved at the propaganda end of it. And what he was uh, doing was hiring war artists, many of whom were kind of avant-garde, including some members of the Group of Seven, to do battlefield paintings, as well as publishing a newspaper. And in in Max Aiken's view, it was important to produce a paper in which people paid for it so it wouldn't appear like it was propaganda. But he was furthering the government's effort at that time, the Borden government's efforts, to basically get everybody to agree with the idea of conscription, which was coming and then did come in 1917, uh, and to completely support uh, the war effort of Canada. He became known to many people in Britain because of this effort. So just to, again, uh, make sure that uh, our listeners are are understanding the context here, the the government in Britain was functioning as a coalition of sorts between Asquith, I mean, under Asquith, and had been functioning like that since... 1915, I think, and a coalition of liberals and Tories, um, which were more or less working together. It wasn't very. It wasn't a very uh, happy cohabitation. No, it wasn't a happy cohabitation among the parties, and there were deep divisions within the parties too, at the time. And a lot of it centered on Ireland. I mean, this is all forgotten, but uh, you know, the whole time they were prosecuting the war. Uh, they also had this huge issue and challenge that they were dealing with in terms of Ireland. And uh, there were divisions within the parties on the Irish question and what to do and how to handle it, Uh, even questions about whether Ireland uh, should eventually become like a self-governing colony or or an independent country. And uh, to top it all off, uh, there was, uh, uh, I think... uh, a lot of division among some of the leaders uh, within these parties about the war effort itself. And so as a consequence of that, there were deep, real divisions, and then there were personality differences. So here you've got this Max Aitken from Canada, who's really uh, built himself uh, an important place in, in British politics from 1910 slowly acquiring influence. He He's knighted practically on arrival. I mean, I think that gives a real indication of how this important this man was. Um, and over the war years, continues to support Bonar Law. Um, Bonar Law is um, a very active Tory, as you said earlier. He's part of that coalition, but he's very unhappy. Bonar Law is very much against anything of Irish independence or anything like that. Um, But there's a coup, so to speak, happening in 1917, isn't there? There there is. And in fact, Beaverbrook was very much one of the masterminds behind the coup and pushed law 
to act in a way that probably law on his own might not have acted. Uh, it was a ruthless, ruthless coup. Uh, and Aiken not only devised how it could happen, but I think provided the justifications to law so that he could, in a sense, accept that uh, morally in his own mind that this was the right thing to do. But Bonerlaw didn't want to be prime minister. No, he didn't, uh, but uh, Beaverbrook or Max Aiken wanted him to be prime minister and wanted him to be prime minister because he knew that uh, if Law was prime minister, he in turn would have a much more influential position. He was betting, that is, Aiken was betting on a dark horse at the time. Law wasn't taken all that seriously early on. Uh, and uh, he decided to put his energy in this one person who he felt had an opportunity. I mean, it was a huge risk. There was a lot of work to be done, but, it, you know, this was something that Aiken could do, and he didn't have the same influence among the other leaders, so he used law to uh, to become prime minister so that he could further his own political ambitions. And again, it certainly puts him in the center of things, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that he's act actively lobbying for Law to become prime minister, to replace Asquith. But uh, Law doesn't want to do it, and it's uh, David Lloyd George who emerges. David Lloyd George, who was the chancellor of the Exchequer under the right, Asquith right. Uh, administration. Right. And, you know, David Lloyd George was the kind of guy that Beaverbrook could deal with. It was uh, He was an exciting uh, and uh, somewhat ruthless uh a politician in his own right. I think the two of them um, understood each other immediately, and uh, Aiken could do business with him. On the other hand, uh, he, you know, Aiken trusted Law because he felt that Law was committed to the idea of a closer tied British Empire that would uh, basically have a huge tariff wall around it, mm -hmm. and he couldn't trust David. Lloyd George in the same way, because after all, he was a liberal. Yes. Now, you, you, let's talk about, let, let, before we get into the actual uh, creation of this new portfolio of Minister of Information, let, let's go back here and talk about Max Aitken. Can you tell me more about how this guy made his money? What made this, this, this fellow from New Brunswick such an imposing figure in British politics? Well, he was at the very beginning of a major change in financial markets uh, in Canada. And for the first time, industrial companies began to raise money for their growth and expansion through issuing shares. Before that, that had largely been the purview of governments and the occasional utility. But all of a sudden, these industrial companies began to do it. And as I said, he was friends with a guy by the name of John F. Stairs, who was a banker. And uh, Max Aiken convinced him to set up something called the Royal Securities Corporation, which was a firm that sold securities. And then from there, they began to move from street railways into industries in the Maritimes. But hold on, Greg. Hold on now. This guy, did, it, did he go to university? No. So he, we're, we're describing somebody who's like in his 20s. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what what genius did this man have? Well, he was an excellent salesman, number one, and he'd been on the road, and he'd had some success, but he'd also had some failures, uh, and he sold various things, uh, 
and was involved in various businesses, including a bowling alley in in Calgary. Uh, that made him that made him friends with R. B. Bennett. Didn't <laughs> well, he was friends with R. B. Bennett long before that because they were in a law firm uh, in in New Brunswick, and uh, and he'd convinced uh, Bennett to to get him hired as a, basically as an apprentice lawyer. Really? Yeah. You could you could article for years and become a lawyer without going to law school at that time, and that's what Aiken did. But of course, Aiken didn't pan out, and not that uh, way. Not that way. And had to leave uh, <laughs> for various reasons. But the the important point here is is that he got in at the ground floor. He saw the possibilities and the opportunities, and he pushed the Royal Securities Corporation to do things that even some of the Toronto and Montreal firms were not doing very effectively at that time. And to be fairly creative in how he did it. And keep in mind that these companies were uh, selling their shares, but they had to be listed on stock exchanges. And the main stock exchange in the world at the time was the London Stock Exchange. And what Aiken would do would be to create new issues for these companies that would be big enough that he could uh, eventually list them on the London Stock Exchange, but to sell them in places like London, England. And so the new issues soon had markets in places like Toronto, Montreal, and London, England. So he had this ability to issue stock make himself the owner of a portion of that stock, find a market in London, and basically open his his uh, trouser pockets and let the money flow in. Well, that's right. I mean, it was highly speculative stuff at the time. They they all engaged, all of the bankers at that time engaged in what we would call stock watering. They would issue stock uh, that had a face value far greater than the actual value, but they would uh, they would distribute stock free of charge to those that were involved in the new issue. As the the stock gained value, then all of a sudden you had this this high profit. If it didn't gain value, you didn't get anything. Uh, so it was an opportunity to make a lot of money if you pick the companies right. And then Max Aiken went from there to mergers. By 1908, 1909, he was heavily involved in merger making in the country. And what he began to do is put companies together in various industries, Portland cement, steel, uh, railroad car make. And we're in a boom here, so there's a huge demand for that. The big controversy, of course, was the Canada Cement Company. Right. Tell, tell us about that. Well, that was a very complicated. There are many companies involved in that merger. He was dealing with some uh, very prominent establishment figures in the country to uh, bring their companies into this gigantic merger. The idea was to create a big enough company that it could control prices at least to some extent in the country and uh, charge higher prices. One of the people that he dealt with is a guy by the name of Sanford Fleming. No ordinary character. And uh, he took Sanford Fleming to the cleaners, to put it bluntly. And uh, Sanford Fleming, when he realized the extent to which his companies had been bought at a bargain and how he was kind of in a sense, not given the same profit as some of the other owners, uh, really reacted negatively and actually sued Aiken. And the end result of that was that Aiken ended up 
uh, actually uh, negotiating a settlement. But Sanford Fleming made so much noise about the whole affair to everyone that it permanently put a spot on on Aiken's uh, reputation in Canada, and it transferred to, to Britain. He was always viewed with some suspicion in Britain that he'd done something wrong in Canada. Sanford Fleming, again, let's remind our listeners, was the prime architect of the Canadian Pacific Railway, of the, of the, of the trail that was used by the CPR. The inventor of Standard Time. The inventor well. of Standard Time here in Toronto. That's right. <laughs> But an important, I mean, a very important, uh, almost heroic figure in Canadian, in Canadian affairs, and for for Aitken to go after an icon like that, um, and to be dragged into court by an icon like that, would have hurt his reputation a great deal. Do you think that's one of the reasons why he had to find refuge in London? I mean, you say his reputation followed him in London, but I guess there was still some distance um, created by the Atlantic Ocean here. Well, there was a little bit of distance, but it's not the real reason it left. I mean, he was following his markets. He moved to Montreal from Halifax uh, early on because that's where the market, the main market in Canada was, and then the main market in the world was London. He moved to London. It was natural for him to move that way. And second of all, he had attacked many senior figures within the Canadian establishment uh, through his, his uh, business initiatives. He threatened many. Uh, there were a whole group of people in Canada that didn't like Max Aiken, and he didn't give a hoot. Now, he's, he moves away from cement when he crosses the pond... Uh, it takes him a while, but eventually he acquires the Daily Express, a That's newspaper right. in London. That's right. And that, what is that? What's the impact of that? Well, number one, he invested in newspapers because he wanted a greater voice, but he also wanted to make money. And the idea of the Daily Express was that it would accomplish both. It was a working man's newspaper. Uh, it was aimed at those that uh, uh, basically worked for a living as opposed to the aristocracy, as opposed to the upper class, which had their quality broadsheets. Uh, but he could see that a mass market was forming for newspapers. Um, and the main newspapers in the country at the time, the quality broadsheets, didn't recognize that. So he aimed at that new group, the newly educated, the people working in the city of London, uh, the people working in uh, white-collar jobs. And, of course, captivated by the happenings of the First World War. Well, that's right. And he created a, a newspaper that was sensational, that uh, would attract their attention, huge headlines, uh, would get into the blood and gore of it all, didn't avoid those sorts of things that made an appeal to some of our basis instincts. By the way, those newspapers still exist in Britain, mm. and they still do the same thing. It certainly attracted the attention uh, in the sense that he was a real, really great propagandist. Right. Well, he, he was a great propagandist. Everybody knew that. And that's the reason that the Borden government hired him to be their representative in Britain to basically uh, ensure that Everybody in the British com in the British Empire knew what Canada's contribution to the war effort was, and the news filtering back to the home front in terms of what a great job Canada was doing and how important this all was. So he's a great propagandist. He's got an independent base of power in the sense that he 
I mean, let's not put too fine a point on it. He has a lot of these people in his pocket. They're profiting off his businesses. They're shareholders. Boner Law certainly was a shareholder in many of um, Beaverbrook's companies. He's made a lot of people rich. That's right. Uh, and that puts, him to, that puts him in prominence when the shakedown happens in, uh, 19, in 1917. Uh, David Lloyd George becomes prime minister. And there's tremendous pressure. Uh, Boner Law becomes the the, uh, the chancellor of the exchequer under David Lloyd George, mm-hmm. and he wants his protege, um, Max Aitken, to join cabinet also. That's right, but in this new creative post of Minister of Information, which is Minister of Propaganda. Perfect for and, him. And, you know, the Canadian government had shown up everybody else in terms of how propaganda could be done mm. because of the way Aitken had set it up. So the British government, too, wanted a very similar kind of propaganda effort on its behalf, run by the very person that had masterminded the Canadian propaganda effort. So what does he do as Minister of Information in the David Lloyd George government? Well, he makes sure that uh, basically that uh, you move from this very primitive, antiquated thinking about propaganda as as simply censorship and uh, a... uh, few statements by government to seeding stories out to the popular press, uh, the ability to uh, create an image that would stick in the minds of people. He uses video, or we wouldn't call it video, we call it film. That's right, he uses film, he uses painting, and in fact uh, creates images through any means that he can that will in fact um, remain in the minds of people much longer than the printed word. Is it a comfortable place for him in politics? No, it isn't, because he's too much of a lone wolf. Uh, he does things his way. He's not used to working through any collective process. And as a consequence, he quickly earns uh, the enmity of, of, of some of the cabinet ministers around the table. And he uses his personal relationship with the prime minister of the day and others to bypass cabinet processes. So, no, he's not a team player. One of the things he wants, of course, is um, control over government information. He wants to have control over intelligence. That's right. And that will make the people in the war office rather cross <laughs> in the yeah. sense that, he, I mean, there's a struggle in cabinet. He wants to, and, and as you say, he uses his own entrepreneurship here to to go around ministers. To, he has all sorts of runarounds, um, but they slap him down. It's not. I mean, Balfour, who's the what we'd call Secretary for External Affairs, really makes an enemy of Aitken. Well, yes, Aitken uh, hates Balfour from the beginning, and Balfour hates him. Uh, he says, you know, at one point he's a man no one can trust. Uh, but Aiken uses his portfolio to get into everybody else's business, and he feels that it's his business. And they feel quite differently. It's something new. Uh, they don't really understand the nature of propaganda the way that Aiken does. So from a substantive point of view, you know, Aiken certainly has um, an argument. But the problem is they see it all as him trying to increase his own importance and uh, to, in a sense, uh, set himself up to perhaps even become prime minister, and that's not something that we'll tolerate. No, he is, after all, a Canadian. Yes. <laughs> a Canadian on the, as they would put it, on the make or on the take. 
the war ends. So he's named um, on the 10th of February. The war ends, of course, in November of 1918. But he actually has resigned by that point. That's he's right. Not, he's not a well man. Yeah. Well, he, you know, every time he would get into periods of extreme stress, uh, his health would break down. And he would never admit that uh, the, the constant struggle and all of the antagonism towards him was causing him problems. And it would end up being these physical ailments. And he basically would take himself out of the action. The truth is he was being increasingly isolated mm. and attacked by various folks in the government, as well as uh, prominent external folks who criticized his position in the government. And he's running, I mean, it's important to remember now, I mean, he, he is running a newspaper at the same time. He's the Minister of Information, but he's also got a huge conflict of interest in the sense that he's also yeah. running a paper. <laughs> yeah, and he, he never worried about conflicts of interest. But beyond that, he also had numerous business interests. He's a major investor, and he was constantly changing his investments. So you had all of this business going on at the very time he was minister. Greg, I get the impression that this is a period of politics that is completely over. I mean, can you imagine anybody today having that kind of multitude of interests? No. And uh, the, the thing about it was is that it wasn't considered to be a terrible thing at the time, but there was a kind of a, a line that many felt that he had crossed in terms of his interests versus the public interest. So even in the context of the time, it was felt that he was doing something wrong. Let's finish with the, the rest of uh, Beaverbrook's story. I mean, so he resigns from cabinet uh, the week before the war ends in November. Uh, he goes on uh, to live a long life. He'll even come back in cabinet. He befriends somebody by the name of Winston Churchill. And he befriends him and stays his friend during a period of uh, Winston Churchill's, uh, uh, in a sense, exclusion from British politics, a, a period of time where very few trusted Churchill. And uh, Churchill didn't have a lot of friends, but Aiken was a friend. And uh, when Churchill came back into power, he made sure that his friend Max Aiken came back into power as a minister of aircraft production. No small thing when you're fighting the Nazis. No. In fact, he was the one person that Churchill trusted to get the bureaucracy and to get the war machine moving because he was so frustrated with the lack of progress and, and the lack of speed. Last thing, uh, Beaverbrook's name today in Canada really resonates in Fredericton, New Brunswick, because of the uh, wonderful art gallery there, the Beaverbrook uh, Art right. Gallery. Is this when he started acquiring paintings, or how do you, how do you link this period of his life with uh, the legacy that he left? Well, I mean, he became interested in paintings early on in the First World War when he hired all these wonderful painters many in the avant-garde. It was an unusual selection of painters to do war paintings, and some of them were uh, bordered on the abstract. And, you know, he was criticized at the time for this because this wasn't the typical sort of thing. But Aiken did have a bit of an eye for painting, and he uh, collected paintings from that point on. He had a huge collection 
by the 1950s when he donated a number of these paintings to the government of New Brunswick, or at least they thought he donated them. That was finally settled a few years ago. Well, it was sort of settled. It's still There's still um, some issues surrounding this, but yeah. And it wasn't uh, decided fully in favor of the Beaverbrook Gallery, and that's also not very well understood. Uh, the Beaverbrook Foundation in Britain uh, did get uh, the value of some of those paintings back, but the, at at bottom there was a fraud committed, and it was committed directly by Max Aiken. How's that? Well, he said he gave the paintings to the uh, to the government in New Brunswick, and in a sense he did, and he did it for tax reasons. That there was a very high tax rate in Britain at the time, mm-hmm. and by donating these paintings and by declaring himself a resident of New Brunswick, he was able to avoid a lot of taxes. Uh, and so this was all part of a huge tax scheme. Um, but then he went in and he changed the documentation on the paintings to show that he had simply loaned the paintings. And nobody knew about this You're uh, saying he committed in fraud. Canada. He committed fraud. He committed fraud. And he didn't, I mean, his family back in England assumed that they owned the paintings. The government of New Brunswick and the Beaverbrook Art Gallery assumed they owned the paintings. Mm. And this didn't come to a head till a few years ago. And both sides were legitimate in their thinking. It's just that Max Aiken was had created this huge problem. It's it's telling of the man's character? Yes, I think it is. I think that he basically thought he was exempt from the rules. He felt that uh it was okay to change the documentation because he still felt that he owned the paintings. Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up on that. Uh, Thank you very much, Greg, for this uh, insightful discussion. That was uh, Greg Marshallden talking about Lord Beaverbrook's entry into the British cabinet in February of 1918. We're coming up to the 100th anniversary. This is the Champlain Society podcast. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sumit Dami and Purnia Jamshed. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.